I hope in these five, 10 years, we'll really uh, continue um, to keep building on our, uh, on our purpose uh, and really, you know, hopefully really help people in our projects, whether that means we will become more big or successful, I don't really care because I think that's not the, uh, that's not the uh, focus. Right. Uh, but to really continue to discover our purpose, to focus on that, to really put our energies into that, to create a positive impact on the world. Hey guys, this is Manisha and welcome back to yet another awesome episode of the Arc Gyan podcast where you'll get some awesome gyan on architecture, tech, design and a whole lot more. So today I'm super excited to have with us a very special guest all the way from Hong Kong, Mr. James Law and he's the founder of James Law Cybertecture. So what is Cybertecture? Cybertecture is the design of all things for a more intelligent world through new pieces of architecture interior spaces, artwork, technology, and strategy. He established James Law Cybertecture in 2001, and they've gone on to complete projects of various scales, some of them being Opod Housing Number 1, which is an experimental, low-cost, micro-living housing unit to ease Hong Kong's affordable housing problems, the capital in Mumbai, Technosphere, Tower of India, Cybertecture Egg, and a whole lot more. The firm specializes in architecture, interior design, master planning, consulting, technology, and industrial design. He's also launched the Cyber Texture Academy that nurtures a new generation of designers from a young age starting from school. So you get to study about architecture right from school. And talking about James, he's a graduate from Bartlett School of Architecture in London, where he completed his BARC. He has over 19 plus years of professional experience in the field of architecture and design. And James was recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader and by the Hong Kong SAR government as a justice of peace for his efforts to improve the world through design. He's got a whole lot more of accolades and awards to his name, but I'm going to keep it short. So in this episode, James takes us on his journey in architecture right from his time at Bartlett to being mentored by Peter Cook and later Itsuko Asegawa in Tokyo how he started his own firm, James Law Cybertecture, how he landed the big projects, also in India, solving Hong Kong's housing problems through design, his design philosophy and approach to design, leveraging technology, smart city planning, the architecture of purpose, which is now his new philosophy towards architecture, and a whole lot more. So for more on the episode, like episode, show notes, links, and also the video version, head to arkyan.com slash 54. Now, this is The Architecture of Purpose with James Law. Let's go. So let's kick things off. Uh, give us a brief about, you know, how you got into architecture. Uh, was it something you always wanted to do as a kid? And how you've evolved as an architect in the past uh, 20, 30 years? You know, I, I wanted to be an architect when I was a child. And uh, I remember very clearly when I was seven years old, I told my parents, hey, I know what I want to do. I want to be an architect. And I think they were a little bit shocked at first, but um, ever since I was seven years old, uh, I realized my 
my life's calling and uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to follow my dreams. Uh, and uh, I think um, in life, um, sometimes the greatest blessings are when you know what your vocation and your life means. And uh, I discovered that when I was very young. All right, great, awesome. And then uh, you went on to complete your uh, bachelor's from the Bartlett School, right? So uh, give us some brief about, you know, your time at Bartlett and how, how the school influenced you and how you practice architecture now. Sure. So, uh, you know, everything happened um, kind of out of serendipity. Um, when I was studying at high school, I uh, really already knew I wanted to be an architect, but I was also fascinated with uh, technology. And then when I applied to universities, I was really struggling to, uh, you know, find out which school was right for me. And um, my first choice wasn't actually to go to the Bartlett. At that time, uh, I wanted to go to Cambridge to do my architecture. Uh, and uh, I went for my interview. Unfortunately, they didn't accept me. So my second choice was the Bartlett. And so I went to the Bartlett, not really knowing what the school was about, but I was so very lucky because the moment I arrived at the school, uh, back in, um, you know, now I'm revealing my age here, about 1989, um, the school was um, suddenly going through these huge changes from one which is a very conventional architecture school becoming something really special, very, very innovative, very tech focused, very creative focused. And that was because um, uh, Professor Peter Cook took over the school and really changed it uh, right. from uh, its conventional roots into something much more like the AA. So I went there, not really knowing at the beginning what the school was about, nor knowing how it would become. But then the five years I was there, I think it really um, kind of programmed the potential DNA that was in me, which is that um, my passion for architecture and technology was really cemented uh, into my philosophy of cybertecture uh, during my time there because I was studying in the school at the Barclay, which was very focused on you know, individual passions and philosophies, uh, really championing the students to explore and to push the boundaries. And we really, you know, came out of that education uh, with an architecture degree that didn't tell you what architecture was, but rather uh, an architecture degree that taught you to keep thinking about what architecture could be. Right, right. And so, and so the Bartlett for me was an amazing five years, very, very interesting, hard work, wonderful community of students, made some of my friends of life there. Nice. And we all were kind of infused with a passion activated within ourselves to find our own definition of architecture. And therefore, when we graduated, I think we had started to embark on a journey of our own, which led to many of our own careers uh, being a journey of discovery and a journey of hopefully some achievement in you know, navigating and traveling this journey of what architecture is. So 
I think the Bartlett is an extraordinary school. Um, it's a school that I think redefined what architecture education can be, right. which is that it doesn't have to be totally prescriptive, but much more about you know what happens within the heart and mind of the student, and he or she finding their position and definition of architecture themselves. So it right. was really a, a, an incredible experience for me. And you did party a lot as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I went really hard. I was one of the hardest. <laughs> Look, you know the Barclay, for those who haven't been to the Barclay, well, the Barclay is part of University College London, which is in London. And um, uh, it has a kind of an urban campus. And the campus made out of all these buildings in the center of a district in London. But um, the Bartlett actually has his own building. And um, this building just happens uh, to be right next to the student union. Nice. So the student union is where the, uh, the cheap beers are, because you're a student, is where the drinking can continue. <laughs> and we had plenty of great tutorials with, with tutors who actually suggested, hey, let's not have the tutorial in school. Let's go across the street to the union and let's have a let's have our session there. And that ends up being a really good fun. And uh, no, no, we, we had no parties. We were really, really, we were so focused. We were absolutely really, no, no. Don't know right. what party is. What is party? What's that? <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right. Uh, and post that, uh, what is your journey like? You work for a couple of architects, so one of them being in Tokyo. And then you started this own journey of getting, starting your own firm. Uh, so give us a brief about that transition from school to starting your own firm. Wow, that's actually um, quite a long journey. It's a story that spans about 10 years. So right. uh, um, I think, I think the, this, those 10 years was a journey where I went through a series of stages. Um, the first stage was, of course, uh, intensive learning. Um, although I raved about the Bartlett being a wonderful school that you know made us uh, our own creative powers, but you know the profession needs you to know a lot of the basics. So that's really what you learn in the first few years of your um, apprenticeship, you can say. So working in some practices in Germany, in the UK. I had a part-time job when I was at university that really helped me. I was working on a really, really small practice that had almost gone bust. So I was the last staff left of the two partners. So I got to uh, mm -hmm. learn about the ins and outs of a small practice. And then the rest of the time, I learned about the discipline of working. I, I paid my own keep working in a, in a, in a library and and in McDonald's, um, so that was my way of me paying my tuition fees and paying some money to my parents. But then after I graduated, I got some jobs and practices, and that's where I started to really learn the, um, the job of an employee in a practice. Uh, and it was a really tricky time because it was uh, trying to balance, you know, getting that experience in order to take my professional exams. But at the same time, you know, in the back of your mind you had you had you know all of these you know ideas that you've collected over the years at the Barclay and your dreams about what architecture is that you couldn't necessarily do straight away in these practices 
Yeah. So a couple of four or five years of, you know, sometimes semi-frustration, but reminder to be humble and to, to learn. And then I think um, my really amazing experience was um, I actually went to Japan to work for Itsuko Hasegawa. And uh, um, going to Japan, <laughs> having the chance to work with um, a superstar architect, um, in Tokyo, living there in a completely different environment, um, really showed me that it was possible to um, run a practice, make a living, uh, pursue your dreams, and keep that all in balance, and, and actually achieve something. And so that was really laying the foundations to me, even though previously I was an employee, and after I worked in, in, in Tokyo, I was still an employee, um, this belief system that yes, I could create a, a practice around myself, which may not be huge, but could certainly pursue my dreams. And then, um, then I, I, I started to work for some big practices, some American big practices right. in Hong Kong. I returned to Hong Kong, started to work on big projects. And um, then I think it was around the it was around my seventh or eighth year of practice that I decided to quit. And there's a story behind why I quit. All right. And the story is this. Um, my senior in, in this practice, he actually reprimanded me for working too hard. <laughs> he All said, right. James, you have no future in this profession if you work like this. If you're gonna spend every night working to one to 2 a.m. on these small projects and you're gonna burn your hours like this, you, this is not the way to do this profession. And I got really cheesed off. I felt that, wow, how can somebody say that to a young architect um, that was passionate, wasn't asking for overtime pay, willing to work late, willing to try many, many options and schemes and always never happy with what you have, just keep improving. But no, was being told that this is not the way to do something. I was really cheesed off. So, so I actually quit. And then that was the moment when I decided to start my own practice because I realized that uh, maybe, just maybe, um, I couldn't impose my own passions onto other people, nor can I expect the world to think in the same way as I do. And the only way that I could actually uh, live and work the way I wanted to live and work was to have my own vehicle. So I left and, um, and then actually what happened was a couple of months later, the same clients that that practice was uh, serving knew I had left and actually got in touch with me directly right. and asked me whether I would like to work on projects for them. I think that was a kind of, you know, vindication that I wasn't actually doing a bad job. I was just overly enthusiastic. Right. And so I decided to start. Um, it also was uh, accelerated by one other thing was the last project that I actually did uh, as an employee was a uh, cyber shopping center. So there was okay. a cyber shopping center built in Hong Kong and um, it got quite a lot of press. Uh, and I was interviewed in the press about, you know, what I thought about cyber and technology, how it was going to affect architecture. And um, I think that also kind of gave me some traction in terms of my 
my persona or somebody who uh, is uh, interested in these kinds of fields. And so when I started my practice, I decided to not call it James Law architecture. Uh, I decided to call it James Law cybertecture. Nice. And um, that was uh, really the journey. But it was a, you know, it was a, it was a 10-year um, kind of um, span of time. Um, I think for some people, it's quite fast already to start your own practice. Uh, for others, maybe not fast enough. But uh, for me, I just felt that it was the right time to make that jump as an employee to becoming my own um, boss, you can say. Uh, but much more much more, I think, uh, driven by the fact that I realized that uh, uh, my destiny was really going to be molded in my own hands right. and not necessarily uh, fitting into the constructs of other people. Um, and that's just a personal thing that happened to me. All right. Awesome. So uh, I'm a 90s kid and, you know, I've seen the evolution. Oh, me of- too, by the way. <laughs> me too. Uh, I was uh, I was a kid prodigy going to uh, architecture school when I was eight. Yeah, so we've seen the transition <laughs> of uh, <laughs> we've seen the transition of technology in games in technology in general, right? And I'm sure you've seen the transition of technology in architecture, right, from the drafting board to now BIM and uh, AI. So you are at a time where technology was still just picking up and is not not there. But you, being a futurist. Um, how did you manage to, uh, you know, integrate the technology then to your practice and now slowly use the late, uh, the upcoming technologies? And also uh, yeah. give us a brief about uh, what exactly is the philosophy of cybertecture and James Law cybertecture. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I was definitely um, very lucky to be, uh, part of that kind of uh, early wave of technological um, kind of uh, integration or technological passion in design that came, you know, in the early 90s. Um, and that really came at a time when, you know, the internet and computing and uh, all of those things started to ramp up into what it is today, which has become ubiquitous around us. But at that time, it was still kind of on the way up. And um, I think, I think um, at that time, I think architecture was uh, very much you know, stimulated by these, you know, these powers of technology because we were starting to feel very confined about what architecture can be. Um, but the world was you know, needing new things. So, so for example, you know, new ways to construct, um, buildings getting taller, uh, building faster, building more economically, uh, and, and then trying to coordinate the whole thing, all was having a hunger for a new kind of technology to help that happen. But then also in terms of the spaces um, that were being constructed, you know, there was a lot of questions about why are we still doing the same thing again and again? you know, after hundreds of years, why are we not uh, going beyond that? So, yeah, at at the beginning, I think there was a lot more conceptual work going on about uh, what is probably possible one day. Uh, In my early work, um, we really basically just bide our chances with every project to try to integrate something. We could never rewrite the book because 
it would be too expensive or too complex or the client would not understand what we wanted to achieve. But we always wanted to do something. So for example, whether it's a building that we conceive as a giant iPod that actually is a really, in fact, a very powerful proposition that you know we're not living in a structure, we're living in a machine, we're living in a, in a piece of technology and what's around us isn't just the walls and the ceilings and the, and the windows but it's also the technology and the data and the multimedia and the intelligence around us that is enveloping us. Uh, in that project, we managed to put some of that technology in there, whether it's smart mirrors or projection on walls or smart locks or, or, or you know, uh, dislocated reality. Um, those things we managed to, to put in, but uh, it was still the early days. Um, the internet wasn't fast enough. The bandwidth wasn't, you know, big enough, yeah. and the costs were quite high. But I think uh, as time went by, um, I think we are now approaching to really the what we call the end of the first chapter of Inception and into the real cyber texture. And you ask me what is cyber texture? So here is the cyber texture definition. So actually, I believe that architecture is a technology that can ultimately alleviate the suffering of mankind. So architecture is literally the technology we build around us that could bind us together, keep us in balance with the environment, keep us safe, help us work, live and play in a healthier, happier way, and to really pave the road to a long-term sustainable world. And so architecture is a technology. And that technology is called cybertecture. Right. And so now the work that I do and the practice does is a pursuit of identifying what are those challenges or problems that we need to solve and how do we use architecture as a technology to solve it. So whether it is something as, uh, you know, ambitious as creating new cities that are not like cities in the conventional way but more like a artificial planet to trying to solve our affordable housing problem where so many people can't afford that even a basic little shelter is to use the technology of concrete water pipes to try and make something that could be available and accessible to all those who don't have shelter these are the pursuits of what cybertecture is focused on. Because like I say, architecture is and can be the technology that ultimately alleviates uh, the suffering of mankind. And so, you know, our practice, we are, of course, a conventional practice. We still need to do projects to exist and to survive. But within that, we often have opportunities and we sometimes try to convince our opportunities to become those great uh, opportunities to make a difference in the world uh, by using a more kind of innovative, creative spark to the project that takes it beyond. And, um, and I'm very grateful for the projects we've continued to do and continue to work on. Uh, it's a journey. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, you asked me 10 years ago, what is the definition of cybertecture? And actually, I, I would have actually said something slightly different. I used right. to say it was a symbiosis of technology and architecture together. But 
it's only in the last maybe five years that I've even uh, come to learn uh, in my journey the, 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 the true purpose of what I'm doing. Right. And that's the new definition of cybertechnology. Awesome. Yeah, I've read in one of uh, your articles that you transitioned from uh, making iconic buildings uh, to now uh, doing more uh, things which are more purposeful or uh, things which you feel would bring satisfaction to you, yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm very happy you brought this up because I think it's uh, another chapter in my own journey as an architect and as a person. Um, you know, I, I think halfway through your career, I hope I'm only just halfway through my career now, um, as an architect, um, you've done quite a lot, but then you start to ask yourself, you know, what actually have you done? You know, what actually have you done? And yeah, we've done many things that I'm very proud of, proud of for myself and for my team and for my clients. And some of them are very commercial projects, uh, and they're very successful and very iconic. They're fantastic. Uh, but, you know, in this current state of the world in the last five years, we've seen how the world struggles around us, the people around us, how they struggle, whether it's the greater economy or the environment to the politics and the social fabric getting really strained. Yeah. Um, to, I think, you know, asking ourselves, you know, all of this energy that we put into building the world, what are we actually building? Have we really asked ourselves, do we need another kilometer tall tower? <laughs> do we need another, you know, um, beautiful multi-billion dollar museum? Whilst at the same time around the corner, you have slums and people living on the streets and people struggling to have, um, you know, food. And so, and then now with COVID-19, I think we really can see how dire we have set ourselves up um, for nature to suddenly, you know, show us just, you know, how, how silly or how, you know, how unfundamental we have really, or unwise we have been building our world with. And so, you know, I have this, key word at the moment which i've used once today already in this chat but i think what you are talking about is the word purpose and i really believe that um, as an architect um, i believe that my purpose is to create an architecture of purpose right it should be something that is uh, a solution to the problems that we are facing in this world, as opposed to just another building or just another icon or just another award or just another, you know, expression of James Law's personal creativity. Right. If my architecture can have a purpose, that means its value isn't just because of James Law, it's because of James Law and the team has created something that would influence and positively impact the world. And that, I think, is just such an incredible and beautiful and worthwhile thing to do as an architect, that we use all these skills and all of this perception and all of these ideas that we have and the craft we have to be able to craft things which are purposeful. 
And um, it sounds humble, uh, and it should be humble, but it should be humble without the lack of ambition. It's about making things better for the world. And that was, that's what's really driving me right now in a lot of our work right. is, you know, whether it's affordable housing to skyscrapers, to city planning, they should have a purpose. Yeah. Right. That, that, that's, I, I just don't see anymore how we can just blindly build things which are aesthetically beautiful or, or crazily complex in geometry and showy and all of those things, but without purpose. I just, I just think that would be a tremendous waste of our time and, and energy and our creativity. So yeah, so you, you brought that up. It's, it's been a break, big breakthrough in my own personal life, I think, that uh, I have found this uh, focus. Yeah. All right, great, awesome. Uh, and talking about how the pandemic has affected us uh, as a civilization, we now realize that because of the internet, we don't really need to go to office or we don't really need to commute. We can have like a multifunctional house. And I'm sure like once the pandemic is done, remote working would take off and a lot of people would travel and, you know, work from various places. So how does that uh, impact architecture? Like what does the architecture of the future look like? You know, it's, it's hard to actually say what it would specifically look like. But I think COVID-19 has shown to us that um, certain paradigms about what human civilization and communities are about in the future may and should be different from what it has been in the past. A couple of the key things that we really made apparent is that, you know, the world really has a lot of people, right? We are at six and a half, approaching seven billion people. By 2050, we would have about 10 billion people. And this sheer number of people are all going to need safe lives, right? Everybody wants to be safe and healthy. And a lot of people would expect to have prosperous lives as well. So we've seen in COVID-19 that when the economy is systemically disrupted by something as unbelievable as a yeah. pandemic like COVID-19, it shows just how uh, you can say society is lacking in the kind of resilience. There is no resilience there built in. And that resilience is the resilience of the human spirit, but then also the resilience of the infrastructure that we've designed around ourselves. So you can say, okay, you know, work used to be home, commuting to work. My God, we can't go to work anymore, to the office. What can we do? Okay, now the technology has come in to bind these two together. We're using it right now, we're using Zoom. Yeah. These technologies are fusing a new kind of architecture and that architecture is taking physical space, the gap between the physical space and then connecting it with virtual space effectively. So we are in a kind of architecture right now that is so different from pre-COVID-19 where you know architecture isn't just about the physical space because the physical space has been disrupted by the ep ep epidemic. And this is not just about 
you know, disease. This could be about climate change, could be about storms, could be about natural disasters. The resilience of the space around us and how we craft the infrastructure that is creating the network that is necessary for people to uh, live together, to work together, to have an economy, to have uh, communities, is something that I think design is going to be very much more focused on in the future. And that resilience comes from three tactics in design. So the first tactic is, of course, you know, the need to build much more sustainably. You know, building buildings that live and breathe themselves, hopefully generate their own energy, recycle their own processes, so that, you know, we don't need to rely on, you know, power stations so much and rely on people to deliver produce so much. You know, a restaurant becomes resilient when it has a rooftop farm that's growing its own vegetables compared nice. to relying on, you know, the supermarket delivering it. Or an office building, it becomes, you know, much more uh, resilient when it has its own wind farm and solar panels on top. And in case the grid falls off, it can still operate for, you know, a necessary period. A hospital is the same, right? A school is the same. So that's one aspect, the, the, the sustainable resilience of the, of the architecture itself. Then the second aspect, I think that's gonna be really very different is the use of new technologies, which leads to new typologies. So what's the definition of living? Well, living is shelter, but then there's all these other aspects of work, uh, of work and play and, and, and communication, etc. And I think all of our architecture would be empowered using these technologies. And so, so how does that work? Well, for example, um, your so-called living room will no longer just be a living room. It will be a portal to connect to the rest of the world. It will be able to link your workspace or your colleagues together all in one go, sharing the space, sharing the, the community. So that's using technologies like Zooms or future forms of Zoom. Right. Another aspect is the intelligence of the space. So like the bathroom, which is a space that we all need to use, right? But the bathroom isn't just the bathroom anymore. The bathroom, the moment you walk in, becomes a health monitoring space. Right. So, you know, it's, it's taking care of you. So instead of your annual checkup that you need to go to hospital or it's, your hospital is very far, it's very expensive to go, etc., your building, your architecture will monitor the state of your health, the state of your well-being, the state of your friendships, social media, etc., etc. So that's the other way that it will happen as well. It will be a kind of assistant to you. It will be your butler. It will be your 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 conscience uh, at the same time, and then and then the third way is ultimately, you know, architecture is about materials. It's about you know components. It's about construction. Is that architecture will change in that sense as well. It will be not in, built in the same way. If the pre-21st century was about construction in terms of creating landed permanent structures, which are monuments or buildings or whatever you call them, I think in the 21st century and beyond because of 
the need to be more resilient, the way in which we build will be different. We'll build buildings more like cars. We'll build buildings more like aircraft. And we'll build buildings more like spacecraft. Not that they need to fly or move or whatever, but the process of construction, which is so wasteful now and so permanent and so unflexible, needs to move into a much more modular, much more uh, kind of smart, uh, intelligent way of building that uh, the current way in which we create architecture doesn't really you know, take yeah. on. So, so those are the three things that really, I think the architecture will change. But ultimately, I think um, the question is, is about people. This is the third major aspect of this conversation. It's really about people. And, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, architecture has always been a reflection of how humanity is living at that moment when the architecture is created. And I think we've seen the state of the world through COVID-19 and what we've built to show that we've been pretty naive or lacking in wisdom. I think in the future, um, if we are becoming more wise to the problems around us, the architecture around us would become so much more brilliant. You know, it would be really amazing. They may become much more like part of nature. Right. They will raise us up on value systems that we probably have forgotten that we really need, like how to be much more, um, how to be much more fair and equitable to people. You know, yeah, it's all very nice to do, you know, five-star, six-star hotels, but 99% of the people don't feel comfortable going into them because they can't even afford, they can't even afford the glass of water sitting in the coffee yeah. shop, right? So, so I think there's, there's going to be this kind of need for a, a new level of design that is encouraging us to become a much more equitable, much more fair, and a much more kind of, you know, sustainable community of humanity. And I think that would create a lot of really great architecture, you know, whether it's great public spaces, great cities that are, you know, um, available to everyone, um, less of this kind of polluting society that we are making now. So, yeah, all of those things I hope will happen. I think they will, because we don't really have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a choice, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you mentioned a lot of interesting facts there. And I'm sure like our listeners would even get a lot of new thesis topics as well uh, from Great. that small bit. Um, I, I just want to bring back uh, the fact that, you know, uh, when you compare other oh. industries like the IT industry, uh, the construction industry is still being sort of flat when it comes to innovation and, uh, uh, you know, growth in terms of technology. But now it's starting to change. And uh, with the advent of BIM, AI, uh, machine learning. So um, do you feel that in the future, uh, architecture would be more like a product for uh, customers where they get to choose their plans, they get to choose the architect who uh, designs the plan. And our job as an architect would be minimal uh, just, to, just for maybe the conceptual uh, side of things. So what That's a very good the, question. That's yeah. a very good question. I mean, I think for a long time, people ask me like, uh, hey, you know, what's the future of our role as architects in the future world? And 
and you can already see that you know the traditional role of an architect knows best the client comes to the architect sits down oh i want to make a house i want to make a building what do you think and you're coming up with it i think that will carry on but i think on the majority that will no longer exist i think the architecture yes in a certain ways will become more like a product and we can we can talk about that in a moment but let's talk about the role of the architect i think the role of the architect will change from one which is a pure kind of architect designer to an architect strategist so when i mean strategy what i mean is for example if we are going to design the best buildings in the world no single mind is going to be able to do that right so no matter how recognized you are how famous you are you're an iconic architect well famous you won't be able to do it because it's getting so complex and it's just a very subjective thing anyway so you become a strategist and what is a strategist is you build a team you build software you program software you build algorithms so that you build a kind of learning system to design so whether you're building a company like me around me with a team or you are programming you know some algorithm for design architects will be doing that because right. architects understand the issues at stake but the processing of the design is far too complex for the architect to do anymore for example recently we did some research there is now available software applications that actually take away the job of the architect right. how does that work so let's say you want to make a, a residential tower on a certain plot in bangalore you submit this information into the software and the software generates a number of options for you about how to build this building then you say oh you know how is that a an intelligent way of designing well it's actually really intelligent it's actually even more intelligent than getting james law to design it for you or you do it yourself right. do you know why the same software has actually got a huge database it's constantly trawling the internet seeing every site in the world around the whole world looking for similarities of sites similar to your site in bangalore same size same orientation same needs and then in your brief, you're asking for a tower with two BHK, three BHK, four BHK, different sizes and things like this. The, the same software is also looking at similar projects all around the world, different BHKs, etc. And then the algorithm looks at how to fit this all together onto your site. All of those informed decisions from the millions of projects that's been done around the world is filtered down for your site. No architect has that amount of experience to do that. And so you would come up with schemes like oh, this scheme is the cheapest to build, or this scheme is the most energy efficient, or this scheme has the best views, or this scheme is the balance of 33% of each. Wow. That is what the role of the architect would be to program that, to empower that as a strategy, but the design itself might be done much more by the intelligence or by the technology behind. Now, going back to that issue about whether architecture will become a product. Well, in some ways, architecture already is a product. 
right? <laughs> so many people, especially middle class people, go to a project, three towers, chooses an apartment. I like that. I buy that tower, that yeah. floor. It's exactly the same as the guy on the second tower on the first tower. And it looks exactly the same. You're buying a product. You're not crafting it yourself. This isn't a personal house that you want to you know, create. It's no longer that kind of world. The hotel room you stay in is a product. This is the same everywhere. You stay in the same brand. It's the same hotel room. Every country, every hotel, same size, same provision, same services. It has become a product. But I think there could be um, potentially a different kind of uh, interpretation of what a product is. So what I mean by that is um, more or less, we feel a product is a little bit confining when we don't have much choice. But once you're given a product with choice, then it's called personalization. So when you do, let's say, a product, which is a 3D printed house, the level of personalization is huge because you can then, as you build it, you can you know, make this a little bit bigger, make that a little bit bigger without disrupting the product-driven aspect of the house. You can't do that with a tower that's got like the same floor plan, but you can do that with a 3D printed architecture. And I, and I think that that might happen that you can have a personalization to it on a level that you couldn't do currently with a product. And that would make it feel more unique for you, as a, even though it is a product. And the other aspect that I really think goes back to this modular approach is when we talk about um, architecture or real estate, we normally, you know, we, we can't move it. I mean, it's, it's there and it's there. And when, one day when you leave, you've got to sell it or, you, you know. But in the future, I think you can move it. Right. So, you know, I want to move from Bangalore to Goa. <laughs> but I love my house. Hey, that's no problem because your house is designed to move anyway. You could be you know, put on the back of a truck or it can be lifted by helicopter or by yes. mega drone and then they're flown to, to Goa. Now that means the product stays with you and that's different from a product that doesn't travel with you. When it doesn't travel with you, you will always in the back of your mind think this is a little bit kind of, mm, you know, this isn't really me. But then when you can relocate it to other places, then that would become a product architecture that is personalized by you, by location. So I think that could also happen as well. Yeah, I guess the definition of architecture keeps, seems to keep changing from every generation to the next, right? Definitely. And, and like I say, you know, architecture for me is, is constantly a, a real-time reflection of society. It's, it's, a, it's reflecting on our annoyances, our, our preferences, our aesthetic tastes, our focus on commodities and money and value. Um, it's, it's also reflecting on our, on our interpretation about what the environment is about. So yeah, it's, it's, it changes because we always change. But this is also where the problem is, is that because we're always changing, architecture becomes outdated really quickly now. I mean, it's so hard to find a timeless piece of architecture now because 
the most successful projects, the ones that are you know, highest you know, valued or lauded, tends to be now uh, ones which are very kind of kitsch, <laughs> very fashion orientated. Yeah. Ooh, another building that does this, or you know, um, but but they they rarely embody universal values, right. which which are very much I think longer lasting than than architecture as a as a as a as a, as a reflection of right now, and so uh, it's an interesting paradigm. It's it's the same for you know we buy a T-shirt or we buy you know you know a piece of clothing. We treat it like okay, yeah, it's it, it's in vogue now, so it's a good <laughs> fashion. But once it's not in vogue, then it's bad fashion. Well, let's think about it slightly differently because we can't afford to do this with our buildings as well. Yeah, is that um, how do we make something that generation upon generation upon generation would still see it as good design and is appropriate and is valued? Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think I think. That's also the problem with architecture is that we, we're just too kitsch with it at the moment. Yeah. All right. Great. Uh, I just want to briefly talk about your affiliation with uh, India and the number of projects you've done in India. So how did you get that breakthrough uh, to come to India and start building? And I'm sure you've had like a couple of, I mean, a lot of challenges uh, constructing in India, right? Well, you know, what the first thing I like to say is that... Um, when I started my company uh, here in Hong Kong, I realized that for me to have a fulfilling career, I would really need to you know, embrace the world. Right. And so from day one, I never thought that I would only be building in Hong Kong. I would really love a, a career where I had the opportunity and the, and the honor of being able to be building in many places around the world. How I came to India was interesting because um, to cut a really long story short, at that time in my life, I was already in Dubai and I was quite active in Dubai. I was spending almost half of my time in Dubai. Right. And then I received uh, an email out of the blue from somebody that I didn't know um, requesting me to see if I was interested to do a project in India. And I actually politely declined because I was so busy and I didn't really know India. I hadn't really visited India even before that. But this gentleman felt that I was quite um, appropriate for the project. And also he felt that I was quite polite to reply. So he came to visit me in Dubai and convinced me to go to India to see the site with him. I went there and it turned out that the site at that time was India's most expensive plot of land that had ever been tendered. Right. So it was a prestigious project. And I think it was at that moment that I realized that, you know, India was so full of potential. Um, and there are a lot of big dreamers and a lot of big ambition in India. This particular client of mine, actually really inspired me. Uh, he also was very generous with his trust of me because um, he had heard about my work in Dubai and 
he, at that time, I was still relatively young. <laughs> and he, he just felt that there was a, a, a bond between the two of us. So he trusted right. me with the project. And then, so that's how I came to India. But, you know, really, I think that whole 10 years so far that I've been in India, I think it's probably a little bit more than 10 years now, uh, has been an incredible part of my life. I must say, an incredible part of one's life means that it is full of many things. It is full of lots of ups, but then a lot of downs as well. Um, I felt, I felt, you know, I learned so much. There was a lot of great kinship and friendship built up between me and my client and my clients. There was a lot of great architects I've met in India that really, my God, I am so inspired. My travels, I got to know more and more about Indian culture. And, and I see a lot of just incredible uh, potential, incredible spirit uh, of, you know, Indian culture that I think is similar to Chinese culture, but different at the same time. But then also a lot of difficult times as well. Um, some because of the drop in the economy, many of the projects stopped. But then also, I think it's a very diverse and complex kind of society where we also came across some builders who were not very uh, honorable uh, right. with their commitments to the projects. But, you know, like every great journey, it must have its peaks and its, its troughs. And, and, I, and, I, and I really have learned so much about myself uh, during my time in India. I feel I fit in. I even play cricket now. <laughs> nice. So, <laughs> so, so I play cricket, you know, um, I eat masala dosa whenever <laughs> I can for breakfast. I love drinking masala chai. Um, I love you know, spending time, you know, traveling around India and seeing the other aspects of India. Uh, I feel that I've, I've had an incredible honor um, bestowed on me in the sense that as a, as a young Chinese architect, uh, I've been invested with the trust and friendship for so many people in India that has given me projects to do. And for that, I, I'm always eternally grateful. And I think, you know, it's something that you know, I think in my career and life, I just think, wow, that's amazing that, you know, I, I've, I've, I've gone to a place that's been so generous to me. And, uh, but ultimately, you know, I feel that um, both Chinese and Indians are the same in that we, we you know, we love our families. We, we, we work hard. We've gone through difficult times. We need to build better. We need to um, plan better for the future. And, you know, I just feel that I, I have had the luck to be able to bridge the two uh, as an architect. And wow, it's, it's just been an amazing, amazing journey for me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, James. Uh, so you've done like a lot of amazing projects over the years. Uh, the Technosphere, uh, which is like, amazing <laughs> like just to like imagine condensing everything to a globe 
and also like couple of uh, uh, other projects like the capital in mumbai the opods so uh, i just want to give, give i mean uh, hear your opinion on the projects which don't get built like how taxing it is for you when you see the your projects which you devoted so much of time and effort uh, you know not getting realized uh, and how do you overcome that uh, i i'm sure like lot of architecture firms fam- face the same problem right <laughs> yeah um of course uh it, it it can be quite disappointing um you know you put your heart and soul into these projects the whole team big ambitions um but i think over the years i have matured much more uh, both accepting these things sometimes work out and sometimes they don't into a perception that you know everything in life especially architectural projects are a result from circumstances right you need to have all of the circumstances kind of you know very very fortunately aligned for things to really happen and go through uh, and and get created that could be the economy that could be politics that could be about people it's is very very uh it's a very very narrow probability actually especially when you're doing something ambitious or something that is game changing because there're always going to be doubters and there's always going to be risks that people have to take in order to do something different as well so that further adds to the probability of it not going ahead um When I was younger I used to get quite frustrated. I used to think like oh my god, you know, another one that didn't get built. Um we if if it got built then it would change the world and I didn't manage to quite change the world and right. that was that's that's kind of frustrating at that time. But now uh I want to share with you that um I've come to accept it in a much more I think healthy way. You know, I really believe what's meant to be will be <laughs> you know the the hiccups or the suspensions or the or the things that didn't get built uh, are a lesson in life that um you know if they were all got built then you've had a you know seemingly a overly perfect career <laughs> that would be that would be like my god you know that would be that would be something that's unbelievable um but also what you take away from them i think if you use it properly you it makes you into a stronger more mature and wise architect in that you, you shouldn't have those expectations you shouldn't have the expectations of fame wealth you shouldn't have expectations of ego to try not to have the expectation of success um architecture is a journey and it's one that has to be traveled uh realistically and your commitment shouldn't be founded on the um you know the tangible successes that you've achieved but by the underlying belief and passion in your work and so i think these last 10 years where so many projects didn't get built were conceived and designed but didn't get built were great lessons for me and my team to to realize that um what really drives us needs to be 
on the level beyond the tangible realization of the projects. They have to be something greater than that. And then, and then you know, you leave it to God that the right ones get built and the right ones come at the right time in order to really create that positive impact or purpose that we want to create. So, yeah, it, it, it is hard at first and it's, it's never totally easy, but um, you know, there's, there's a phrase uh, that has recently been quite commonly used. It's a, it's a, it's a quote from Bruce Lee, right. you know, the Kung Fu. Group, yeah, of Kung course. Fu, right. And one of the ways that he, he uh, shared his philosophy was this phrase, be like water. Yeah. Be like water. So as long as you can keep flowing like water, even though sometimes you get diverted by an obstacle, you don't get stopped by it. You keep flowing, just yeah. keep flowing through, just keep flowing, keep your energy, keep flowing. Don't let these things uh, break you. Don't let these things destroy you. And eventually, you know, you will flow to where you're meant to flow. And uh, that's, that's kind of how I see it as well. All right. Brilliant. Uh, all right, James. And, uh, one of the last questions to you would be, uh, what's your take on architectural education? Like, do we really need to study for four or five years to become an architect, considering the fact that the world now uh, requires rapid solutions, uh, you know, get, get to the task really fast, come up with solutions really fast. But our school, uh, they generally talk about the subjective side of things, like building your creativity. But do you think that could probably be condensed to maybe two, three years and... Uh, also become a good architect, even if you don't study architecture? So it's a difficult one to answer. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think architectural education needs to be a balance between creativity and the practical, because ideas don't build buildings. Yeah. You know, real practical hands and, and knowledge build buildings. So you need both. You know, if it's only the hands building the building, then the building is kind of, you know, lacking in ideas. So I think, I think the education needs to have both. But, but then I also think that the education is long for a reason, but it doesn't necessarily have to be so long. I think uh, it's long because the depth of the thinking and allowing an architect to really come to understand architecture and himself needs time. It's not a one plus one equals two. It, there's a lot of depth in it, so that takes time. But that, that time can also be done during your career. It's not like, oh, after five years of architecture school, I know how to be an architect. No, I think that's just the start <laughs> of your education. So is it five years, is it four years, is it three years, is it two years? Maybe it can be shorter, but it cannot be too short. But one thing that I do believe in is that um, architectural education should start earlier. I don't really necessarily think it has to be only a tertiary education curriculum. Um, I really believe that some of the most creative, passionate sparks can happen when you're young. I was lucky to by chance find it when I was very young. But why can't architecture be taught at primary school? Why can't architecture be taught at secondary school? 
And if you do that, then you might have identified or let those students find, wow, I'm really passionate about this. So, you yeah. know, and once they activate that passion, you know, they don't need five years in architecture school. By the time they graduate secondary school, they already learned all of their BIM and they know their architectural <laughs> history. And I love design, I'm building things, I'm experimenting. Wow, you have a generation of architects which are so much ahead of the game yeah. that, you know, you don't need five years of architectural education to uh, train them to be architects. So I, I, think, I think, you know, rather than making it shorter, I think making it earlier can maybe really unleash a whole new generation of amazingly talented uh, young architects. And that's and, what and, your, your company yeah. is doing, right? Cybertecture Academy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I believe that. I believe it's, uh, it's one of the formulas of success in terms of education that um, uh, we try to allow students to earlier in their life to try something that they won't be able to try under tertiary education. And then you find that, my God, you know, they are so talented and so passionate yeah. that, you know, they, 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 they basically, they basically accelerate and overtaken, uh, you know, the, the others. And, 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 and that's great. That, that's really great. That's what we're doing. Yeah. We believe in that. Brilliant. And how much do you feel online education could uh, change architecture? Because we have a lot of online courses, uh, we have a lot of workshops, academies. Uh, so how much of an influence does uh, online education yeah. have on architecture? Yeah, I, you know what? I, 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 think it, I think it does. I think it should. I think, um, for example, you know, normally at architecture school, when we go to school, we are really, you know, I wouldn't say confined, but we are within the construct of that school. So you're being taught by the teachers of that school. And, but online, there's a probability or possibility that you could have a much more diverse set of teachers, diverse set of circumstances arise. You could be taught by somebody from Denmark. You could be taught by somebody from Japan. And you could, you could talk to other architects from South America. Oh, that's great, right? I mean, surely a wider kind of perspective on the education through the internet is always a great thing. And, and like it or not, um, I think this word online and offline will be disappear in the future. It's just right. going to be, you know, we, we're all going to be connected. And, 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 you know, I didn't need to fly to India to have this interview with you, nor did you have to fly to Hong Kong. And, yeah. you know, we can chat like this as if we are sitting next to each other. And, and so, so I think it should be part of the education as, as much as it can to, you know, expand and empower beyond the confines of the education that you're already having. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a no brainer. I think, you know, that's yeah. just going to be great for architects. Yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. Uh, James, uh, where do you see yourself maybe 10 years from now? What is James Law Cybertech going to be looking like in the coming few years? Um, you know, that's a very good question. Um, I, I tell you the tangible answers first. You know, we, right. we, we, we're running the practice and we're doing projects and we tried our best with all of the opportunities that we get with the projects. 
we run the academy, so we will continue to do that, hopefully grow that into, and mature that into something that is gonna be really, really great to you know, inspire a new generation of young architects. Um, I recently started a, a startup to build and design um, you know, shelter to, to basically, hopefully, a grand mission is to eradicate homelessness with a new generation of architectures like the O-Pod and the Box-Pod. And uh, we want to, you know, share that with the rest of the world. So that's all happening. These are the tangible things happening. Um, I think the next five to 10 years is going to be a very, very uh, amazing time. Uh, and when I say amazing, it's a mix of, you know, great challenges as well as great successes and great failures. Um, I think we're living in this kind of, you know, a kind of renaissance period actually, where, um, you know, hard work and great ideas can change the world because we are facing a lot of problems. And I hope that, you know, myself and my team and the people we work with, our partners, our projects, I hope in these five, 10 years, we'll really uh, continue um, to keep building on our, uh, on our purpose. Uh, and really, you know, hopefully really help people in our projects, whether that means we will become more big or successful. I don't really care because I think that's not the, uh, that's not the uh, focus, right. uh, but to really continue to discover our purpose, to focus on that, to really put our energies into that, to create a positive impact on the world. That's all I can hope for in the next, you know, five, 10 years. And, um, and uh, you know, I, you know, I'll be very grateful for that already. So, yeah. All right. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, James. I think we had a fantastic session. Uh, we Thank just you. have a, a quick fire round. I'll just ask you a couple of brief questions and you sure. probably give brief answers. All right. Uh, who, who has been uh, your mentors as an architect, uh, you know, in your career as an architect? I can list them for you. So um, my, my, my professor, Peter Cook, uh, inspires me by the way he thinks. My mentor from Japan, Itsuko Hasegawa, who generously took me under her wing and let me see a whole new world. Um, and then the people around me in my practice, they really inspire me every day to work as a team. But ultimately, I think my parents for um, you know, letting their son pursue their dreams, even though they didn't have a lot of resources and have allowed me to become uh, an architect. So they are the ones who inspire me. All right, awesome. Uh, which city would you consider your favorite? Uh, Hong Kong. Uh, because right. it's my home, uh, but then um, I love my other cities that I've spent a lot of time in, Dubai, Mumbai, uh, London have always been close to my heart. Yeah, these have been my major favorite cities. All right. Uh, what does a daily routine in James Law's life uh, look like? Maybe pre-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> So uh, wake up early in the morning, uh, I drive my uh, wife to work. Um, and then by 8 a.m. I'm uh, at the uh, golf driving range, uh, practicing right. my golf. Um, nice. Aside from my passion for architecture, I uh, am aiming 
fantasy to become a scratch golfer. And uh, so I practice two hours of golf every morning. Then I go to the gym and then um, I'm back at work by about 10 o'clock and then uh, work through the day, lots of meetings, recently a lot of Zooms, um, and then try to finish work at a healthy time around 6, 6.30, uh, and then um, you know, pick up my wife, and then we have dinner, and then, uh, yeah, and then just relax, and then, yeah, that, that's my uh, very simple life. Yeah. All right, great, awesome. Uh, and what do you consume for entertainment? Do you have like favorite movies or uh, series <laughs> or Netflix that you watch? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ever, yeah. Ever since I was young, a little boy, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big movie fan. Um, you know, I, I watch everything. I love um, science fiction, of course. Uh, big Star Wars fan. I watched it about 120 times. Um, big Marvel fan. Um, I'm a big classics fan. A lot. I, my father loved um, World War II films. I watched nice. those. Uh, last five, ten years, I uh, love um, Indian movies. Uh, <laughs> nice. You know, Three Idiots, Dungo, you know, all of that. I, I met the uh, producer and director of Dungo, so oh, that nice. was uh, amazing. And, um, um, and then, uh, yeah, Netflix is uh, always always on in the house, always on in the, here in the office as well. <laughs> All right. um, yeah, no, movies are great, great, great thing. It just makes you relax, makes you see another world and uh, shows you a lot of possibilities. Yeah. yeah all right. Um, do you have any books that you would recommend uh, or which, which ones would you consider your favorite books as well? Yeah, um, there's a lot of books which I read, which are not architecture related. Right. Um, but um, if I recommend a, an architecture related one first is um, uh, really close to my heart because that was the reason why I became an architect um, was uh, I didn't read the book I saw the movie first which was uh, The Fountainhead right. by Ayn Rand so uh, I watched the movie when I was a child and that inspired me to become an architect but since then of course I read the book uh, you have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Uh, it's a kind of heroic uh, story, but um, um, but it's it's of course very inspiring about you know keeping a vision and yeah. uh, sticking to it. That's that's um, but you know I, I read a lot of other things. Um, I, I recently you know read a lot of autobiographies. The autobiography of um, you know, Barack Obama. Read the um, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela, um, you know, um, a lot of interesting innovation books um, about how the world is changing. Uh, and yeah, uh, just, I love reading. I just don't get so much time to read. Um, but uh, yeah, those are the kind of books I like. All right. And also Harry Potter. <laughs> awesome. Um... Uh, where do you get your inspiration from? Uh, like, uh, uh, is it from uh, through life's experience, or is it uh, uh, more of uh, your the books you read, or the movies you watch, or the people you meet? Uh, definitely life experiences. Um, the more I feel that I'm letting go and living life, and uh, you know, trying to be open and perceptive of what's happening around me, the more inspiration I get. 
and the more I think the more relevant the ideas are when you when you when you do that so yeah um you know Peter Cook once kind of told me that uh, his his analogy of how inspiration comes for somebody is that you know we're all kind of unique filters we're all different personality different souls and we are actually a filter of our life's experiences and and what we filter the filtrate inside our filter becomes the material for our creativity so the more we expose our filter to you know the world relationships happenings events uh, knowledge um, stimulation i think the more uh, kind of diverse uh, collection of filtrate that we get into our lives and and, and, and that's kind of somehow germinates into uh, ideas. So yeah, I, I get it definitely from my experiences of life. Yeah. All right, brilliant. And my last question to you is, uh, what advice would you give to young architecture students and uh, graduates of architecture? Wow. Um, I think I think really my advice is to live your life to the full um, find happiness be balanced be safe um, be patient be patient to uh, mature and understand yourself um, don't don't let the ego especially the ego of architecture or the ego of being an architect overtake you remember it's a blessed profession but it's also a very um, I think it's also a very dangerous profession because it could corrupt your corrupt your mind to become obsessive so it's important to live a balanced life a healthy life um, to to be grateful for you know every small project, every opportunity you get, do your best. Uh, and then maybe the culmination of all of that is you will, you'll get the um, deserved career that you deserve. And you get it in a way where you haven't, uh, you know, stupidly sacrificed yourself. Uh, but at the same time, you have, you know, contributed the best of yourself so that's my advice all right great uh, thanks a lot james i think we had a fantastic session lots yeah, to it's learn. great and uh, thank you so much for inviting me and your your interviews are great i think they you know i think the uh, your audience is really you know can get a lot out of all of these sharings right so absolutely it's a really great platform yeah, we need to leverage technology as much as we can, right? So, Absolutely, uh, <laughs> yeah. And you're doing it. Doing it really well. All right. Thanks, James. And I hope to have you in the future as well. We could dwell deep on specific topics as well. Of course. Sure. Most welcome. Thank you. And uh, good luck with everything. And uh, stay in touch. All right. Great.